Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. I'm your host, Carl Thomas. So the question is, who was the best boss you ever had? Why? And what did he or she do that resonated so strongly with you? More importantly, how are you applying what you learned? From veteran founders and CEOs to emerging next-generation leaders, these men and women talk about their experiences in candid, fun, and insightful conversations. So stay tuned, because the hits just keep on coming. Don Meek and I first met in the early 90s when he was developing and managing a portfolio of sports event properties that were owned then by the Prime Ticket Network, including its flagship property, the U.S. Open of Surfing, still going strong every summer in Huntington Beach, California. But Prime Ticket also bought programming rights from rice holders because they had a 24-7 sports network that needed compelling content. And that's where this story begins. I was the COO at the AVP Men's Pro Beach Volleyball Tour, responsible for, among many other things, all of our television distribution. Prime Ticket was one of the tour's primary television partner distributors. I was selling, and Don was buying. We did deals together that were win-win, and we've been friends and business colleagues for over 30 years. He's an experienced executive in media, brand, and content development, as well as a trusted advisor in digital, television, print, events, technology, and sales. His early work gave him valuable hands-on experience across an array of disciplines, including programming and production, brand management, integrated sponsorship packaging, international content distribution, web development, and managing multifunctional teams. At Sony Pictures, he launched international TV networks, heading up sales and marketing, for one of the pioneering online video platforms at iFilm. And he led the leading action and adventure sports media company as president of Prime Media's Action Sports Group and later served as the head of digital at Tribune Company. Today, Don is the global chief content officer and North American president at Fuel TV. He also serves as the managing director of U.S. Board Writers Clubs, a nonprofit that is the organizing body for over 40 board riders clubs across the USA. Don, wow, that is a very long list of great accomplishments. <laughs> it's great to have you with us today. Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast series. Well, thanks, Carl. I appreciate that. When I was preparing for this, this conversation with you, I realized that, boy, I've had a lot of jobs. So it's great to be here with you and to reflect back on all those experiences. And congratulations to you on this podcast. It's fantastic. Well, thanks very much. Uh, I much appreciate it. And I can tell you, we've all had a lot of jobs and we're still at it. So as you look back, since this is the Best Boss Ever podcast series, share with us who the best boss that you ever had was, why, and sort of what you learned. Well, hands down, it would be our mutual friend, Don Corsini, who I met in probably 1989, 1990, when I got to, as you mentioned, Prime Ticket Network. And he had been a legend at ABC in Los Angeles and was at Prime Ticket with that crew of men and women who had come from Channel 7 to Prime Ticket to work for John Severino 
who had been recruited by Bill Daniels, that legendary group of people that really put regional sports networks on the map. And Bill was a fearless leader, entrepreneur, kind of the godfather of cable TV in the United States. And he brought that that team over and really did put Prime Ticket at the forefront of what was to be an exploding industry, which was local sports on television in the Los Angeles market and regional sports networks around the country. And I met Don probably when I first got there in 90. And we met up, we, we enjoyed each other's company. I was in sales, he was running programming. And it was in 1991, Carl, you'll remember that we suffered a terrible advertising recession. And we lost our budgets for the summertime programming that we were producing, which included the Bud Pro Tour in surfing and your property, the ABP Pro Beach Volleyball Tour. We were actually paying for the production of that and putting it on prime ticket. We didn't have any baseball in the summertime back then. The Dodgers and the Angels uh, both thought that putting local games on local television would hurt the gate. It's funny in retrospect to, to look at that and actually know now that the opposite is true, that you put the local teams on local TV and you build fandom. But we didn't have that. And so Corso, as we affectionately call him, said to me, hey, man, we're going to lose our budgets for producing these events. We don't have any advertisers. Do you think you'd like to go and find some sponsors to help underwrite the cost of these events on television? And if you can do that, I've got a job for you. And I became head of sports marketing and worked for Don for four years. And it was just an amazing experience. So he gave you a kick at the can, which is awesome. You always remember those moments. How was he as a leader? inspirational, charismatic, you know, larger than life, really smart, incredible with people, fierce defender of his people, gave me so much rope that I hung myself half a dozen times. Um, (laughs) But I would go to battle with that guy any day of the week, just a phenomenal, a phenomenal character, but also the kind of guy that would give you both responsibility and authority at the same time and then would hold you accountable to the outcome of the work. And I didn't realize at the time how rare that was until I got into other organizations where you had responsibility, but no authority and really hard to hold people accountable in a situation like that. It is so crucial to get the best out of an organization. And I do know Don and, and he was, he was awesome. And, and that, that's a great, that's a great story. So as you guys are building a, a regional slash local cable sports network, we call it linear television, right? It comes over the cable, it comes into your living room. But that was oof, 30-something years ago, and the landscape is so dramatically changed, and you are squarely in the middle of that change as a change agent. So give us a little bit of perspective on how dramatically it has changed And, you know, sort of where and how does over-the-top television, OTT, as we call it, streaming services, cord cutting, all of these sorts of things seemingly are conspiring into a perfect storm? Well, everything has changed and nothing has changed in many ways. You know, there's alphabet soup out there of all these terms that you need to know. But if if we go back to three quick eras, you have the era over-the-air broadcast television where you got your signal on an antenna, either on your roof or over rabbit ears on your TV, and you were limited to whatever the broadcast signal was in that market. You had the national networks and, you know, some independents. And then cable television 
and this is where Bill Daniels was really one of the architects of that, was really meant to extend a signal into distant markets. So if you were living in Northern Colorado and you didn't get the Denver station over the air, you might have cable TV to be able to get those stations. And then in the 70s, late 70s, HBO started in Turner and ESPN became cable-only networks, if you recall that. And so now we're into the age of cable, and that lasted until the bandwidth provided by the public internet became sufficient to be able to receive video. And now we have seen an explosion of new internet-delivered television content that is delivered through apps. It's delivered through fast, free advertising-supported streaming television applications, Samsung TV+, Plus, LG, the original equipment manufacturers. You've got mobile devices now. But everything really does rely on the public internet for delivering content. And that's been the biggest change um, that I think we've seen. All of the barriers to entry and all the gatekeepers have largely been eliminated, whether it was the FCC that you would have to work with to get a broadcast license in a local market, or it was the buyers at Comcast or Charter or Time Warner Cable that would give you a slot to be able to you know, televise your signal. And now we're in this wild west again, where virtually anybody that's got a computer and an internet connection can stand up some video and distribute it direct to the viewer. And we're in this really funny space at the moment where it can be done relatively inexpensively. And this is where you've got the great democratization of the content landscape. Along with, you know, audience fragmentation and in those early days of network television, and even to an extent, cable, advertiser-supported programming, which then was augmented by subscription-supported programming through the cable business model. Now we have a wide variety of, to your point, public internet-supported streaming platforms, some free, some advertiser-supported, others on subscription, how has that fragmented fracture or, or otherwise, you know, sort of dispersed audience, audience focus, right? Uh, audience condensation, wrong term, <laughs> but you get the point. <laughs> well, the audience has been blown into 7 billion pieces and every single person is programming their own personal prime time now. I mean, I remember when I was a ad sales guy in LA in the 80s selling 26, 27 ratings in, in 60 minutes and regularly 15 ratings in prime time. If you get a 1.5 rating in prime time, now you have a runaway massive out of the park home run hit on your hands. So the, the number of choices that people have on where to view and what to view and when to view is now completely in control of individual viewers. And I would say that while any, it's never been easier to stand up a video service, it's never been harder to build a brand or acquire a customer. And that's the big challenge. And that is why I think scale matters and why you're seeing all of the traditional big media companies doing what they're doing in the streaming space and looking at how they're leveraging their brands and working on really sophisticated data models and how they're going to move audience around. It's fascinating to watch. Well, it is. And it's sort of a multi-headed beast, right? It's very difficult to corral. And, and so let's talk a little bit about content because 
you know, the famous phrase, content is king, is always attributed to Michael Eisner. Let's just give him credit for that. But it also remains true today. So content comes in many forms. And one of the aspects of media companies, particularly television companies, as they sort of deal with the fragmentation we just spoke of, is all around event ownership. You at at Prime Ticket back in the early days owned the U.S. Open of Surfing. You, You sort of started that and you leveraged your ownership around not only programming, but advertisers and integrated sponsors. NBC Sports took a crack at it as well. You know all about the Gravity Games. That was partly owned by NBC Sports. And they they owned a number of other things, including, you know, a wide variety of sort of disparate content, probably the most famous that you and I are familiar with and that this audience is familiar with is the X Games. ESPN created that property back in the early to mid-90s. It's still going strong. They have obviously had an ill-fated moment where they tried to internationally expand, which was essentially distributing U.S.-style event packaging and programming around the world, which, as we know, didn't work. And, you know, if you believe the trades, X Games is is on the block. So how does event ownership play into the pantheon of programming options for media and TV companies? Well, I can speak to my experience. In 1991, I stepped into that role, and one of the properties that I was responsible for was called the Bud Surf Tour. It was owned by the Maestro family who started Body Glove Wetsuits, if you are familiar. Yep. And I remember sitting in Robbie's office, and so so we don't have the money to pay for production at this point. I've got to go find the money if we're going to keep this on the air. And as I said, we didn't have any baseball in the summertime, so it was sort of sink or swim. And I remember asking Robbie Maestral, you know, how much more valuable is this event on television than not on television? And he laughed at me like, you dummy, what do you think? It's worth a hundred times more on television. And the light bulb went off. And I thought, you know, there's nothing stopping us from owning these events. You know, we can hire the event management team to run it. We already have the television production lined up. I'm already producing television commercials for our sponsors maybe we could buy this and maybe we could own it and, and monetize all the revenue streams. And so that was our first foray into what we called the event group. And from there, I created with a team, the American Pro Snowboard Series, the Downhill Mania Mountain Bike Racing Series. And then the U.S. Open came in 94, started working on that in 92. And we brought the world tour back to the U.S. And our strategy was let's own the copyright to these properties. Let's exploit every revenue stream that's available to us. And if you think about those, they're not only sponsorship, but there's live gate if you can charge a, a ticket. There's merchandise, there's international distribution rights. There's all kinds of ways that you can monetize. And it's interesting, we're doing it with a group of regional sports networks that were all under the prime network banner. So we all operated on this unwired network basis. You know, we had affiliates in Texas and, you know, Madison Square Garden in New York and Sports South, which was the Turner property. And at the same time, Ron Semio at ESPN is launching the X Games and they're going to own the copyright. And so there was something in the air at the moment where it was about owning the copyrights. We got acquired ultimately by Fox and they de-emphasized owning events entirely and they shifted in the direction of news. And I think ESPN kept it going strong. And then you had the Gravity Games launched, and then you had the Dew Tour. And so there was this idea that 
networks could own their own IP. And the trend has come and gone, I think, with the rise and fall of the sports that have, you know, ridden these cultural waves. And I feel like we're now in an interesting position for networks, particularly with what we're seeing in the participation levels of the core sports that we cover, which are surf, skate, snow, mountain biking, BMX. During COVID, the participation levels have more than doubled. Hard goods sales have more than doubled. And that's not just in the United States, that's worldwide. So arguably now with six of our sports in the Olympics and participation rates increasing at a, not exponential, but they're doubling. I mean, it's just a radically different landscape. I think that you're going to start to see networks or big media platforms get back into the business of owning their own properties. That's, I think that will happen. I sort of agree with you. I don't think that that business model is gone for good. Business models have a way of, of rising out of the ashes when the timing is right. You know what, Carl? Look at what Thrill One are doing. Thrill One is a great example run by a really good operator named Joe Carr. It is the roll-up of Street League, Nitro Circus, and Rob Deardex Production Company. They've got now Thrill One Sports and Entertainment. They've launched a network on Zumo and now on Relax, which is the Foxum platform. They've got a library of content. They're going to be producing their own events, and they're going to be putting them on their own air. They'll do some output deals with big networks because that's some pretty spectacular stuff that they create, but they own it vertically. And so I think you're going to see this continue. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. That's a great sort of segue into what you're doing now at Fuel TV. Our listeners will recall that Fuel TV was a Fox channel 20-something years ago and had a pretty darn good run. You and I both know well the ex-GM there, C.J. Oliveris. And then when Fox made the decision to reprogram Fuel TV, and they walked away from the name and the content, the notion of what Fuel was became a little bit murky. Fill in the blanks for us and then quickly go to how you guys constructed where you are today with Fuel. Sure, I'd be happy to. So yes, Fuel TV started in 2003, launched by CJ as a GM under the guidance of Rich Batista. And that was a natural progression from the work we did at what ultimately was Fox Sportsnet or Fox Sports West, and then into Blue Torch and then into Fuel. And it was really meant to be the global home of action sports or the, or the U.S. home of action sports on television with a focus on surf, skate, snow, all those sports that we talked about. And it ran unadulterated until about 2011. And in 2011, Fox did the deal with UFC and they began to use fuel as an output destination for some of the content that they needed to put on the air that they didn't have a home for. And then in 2013, the, the distribution was switched. So Roger Warner and Nick Rhodes sold Speed Vision to Fox. And I don't have this firsthand, but I have a very strong suspicion that Chase Carey and David Hill, David Hill, who ran Fox Sports forever, just an incredible executive and a very creative guy. I think they had plans to take on ESPN from back in the 90s, to be honest with you. And as they acquired these assets, both Speed Vision and Fuel, 
they had the opportunity to take that distribution, which was the number of households that those channels reached and flip those to become Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports 2. And that's what happened in 2013. So Fuel TV essentially went off the air in favor of Fox Sports 2, but it never went off the air outside the United States. And that's a thing that I think a lot of people don't know. In 2007, my now partner, Fernando Figueiredo from Lisbon, became the Portuguese licensee for Fuel TV and built a playout facility in Lisbon, which is today our headquarters. And in 2014, engineered a purchase of Fuel TV from Fox. So he essentially bought the channel. He was programming and distributing the programming using the Fuel brand, but he actually engineered the purchase of the assets from Fox and continued to expand distribution around the world as a traditional linear pay TV channel. But without U.S. distribution? There was no U.S. distribution. There was no Australian distribution at that point. It was largely confined to Europe and a smattering of Asian distribution. And it was chugging along. And this is, you know, we'll go back to it was still days of pay TV where you would get paid a, a per subscriber fee every month. And you could make a business out of having a brand like Fuel and a 2,500 hour library and, and you could make it work. And it's a very long involved story that I won't take up your time with. But essentially in 2016, it came to our attention, I was partnered with a guy in a company called Everyday Networks, and we were looking to create a new network services business to stand up a set of new enthusiast channels, thinking that OTT was the opportunity of a lifetime to build new enthusiast properties that would be able to go direct to viewer, where we wouldn't need to go through the Comcast of the world, and we wouldn't need to go through the FCC. And so our investor, our sponsor said to us, it's a great plan you guys have, but I think you need to prove the model. You should look at a going concern that you can acquire and determine whether or not the idea will hold water. And so I reconnected with CJ and he introduced us to Fernando and we were able to engineer a transaction in July, August of 2016, where we acquired Fuel TV globally. We kept Fernando on as our head of international. Uh, we maintained our playout facility in Lisbon, and we were going to bring fuel back to the United States. Now, mind you, this was 2016, and this is when we're talking about apps for OTT. And for anybody that doesn't know OTT, over-the-top television, um, the acronym stands for going over the top of traditional distribution outlets, whether it be cable or broadcast. So it's really the way to describe how you would get your signal to an endpoint. And for the most part, that's via the public internet, as we discussed earlier. It's all via the public internet. Yeah, exactly. All, all of the OTT. And, and, and even, <laughs> it's funny, Netflix is delivered over the public internet. Right. And now how you get your internet is, there's a million ways to get your internet. But yeah, so that is how you did it. And back then it was through the connected streaming boxes, Roku, Apple TV, Amazon Fire Stick, Google Chromecast. And you'd build an app and you would then distribute your content through that app to a subscriber who would then download your app on their device. And, and that's how you did it. But you needed that peripheral device that you just described. At, at the time you did. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, while the business model, I, I believe, was sound, we were early 
And the number that we needed to raise to make the business go was pretty challenging. And so we ultimately did not raise the working capital we needed to continue. So we sold fuel back to Fernando in Lisbon, still no distribution in the United States. And Fernando asked me to stay on his board, which I did. And then in 2018, I took an operating role to head up global content acquisition and then be the GM of North America. And (laughs) there was no North American distribution at that point. And we were trying to figure it out. And Carl, I must have spun up four different plans and gotten people involved and excited about bringing Fuel TV back. But we just kept running into the same challenge, which was the sheer cost of getting the signal from Lisbon to here in a form that could be distributed to enough households where we could actually make an impact. Right. And all the things that that everybody who watches it today via the connected Samsung platform, which I want you to explain next, has no idea about how a signal gets from Lisbon to here. All they want is their content when they want it. Correct. And the other thing that's happened, and I'll just do a quick aside, is that this acronym FAST, you're going to hear more and more and more free ad-supported television. And it sounds funny because all broadcast television is ad-supported. But in this world that we're talking about, There are now networks that would have never made it onto cable or never made it onto broadcast because they didn't have the infrastructure. It was too expensive to stand up a channel. The time horizon to get to profitability. I mean, I want to go back and I'm thinking that it took Speed Vision and Outdoor Life, I want to say five or seven years to get to profitability. I mean, it took a while. Well, everything old is new again. Now you've got whether it's the Roku channel or it's Samsung TV Plus or it's Vizio SmartCast, these televisions connected to the internet now give you a wealth of viewing options with free television where all you need to do is plug your TV into the internet, plug it into the wall, connect it to the internet, and you now have 160, 180 choices. Everything from Fuel TV to outside TV to, gosh, you know, motor racing to kids' movies, to cartoons, to cooking shows with Tastemade. It's an astonishing world. And it's all been made possible by both the viewing trends and the amount of content that people are consuming during this quarantine time that we've been at home, but also the rapidly changing world of how programming is being delivered to the endpoints. Right. So you launched on Samsung TV Plus last fall. Are you integrated now with with Fernando's and Lisbon linear TV channel, or have you gone completely on a global basis deep into the Samsung Plus model? Well, they're one and the same. We have our headquarters facility and our technical infrastructure is all in Lisbon. So we have a traditional linear playout facility that's gone completely IP. So we are no longer delivering via satellite. And that's the other thing that's interesting. Now all the traditional MVPDs or pay television platforms are now accepting signals like ours via the internet as opposed to over the satellite, which is just an extraordinarily more efficient way to distribute something from a cost standpoint. It's one-tenth the cost, one-twentieth the cost of the satellite. So we now are very fortunate in that we have this legacy technology infrastructure in Lisbon that gives us this distinct advantage of being able to integrate live events into our feed. And we've got six global feeds coming out of there that then we deliver in a variety of ways to a variety of platforms. 
So in some cases, we deliver direct to the platform with ad markers dropped into the programming so that the ads fire and the ads are all sold by the exchanges. It's programmatic, very similar to the way digital display is sold. Mm -hmm. Now there's premium direct as well. And then for Samsung and for a variety of the other OEMs, they have designated packagers, I guess, is the way that you would think of them. There's World, which is who we use with Samsung TV Plus. There's a frequency that's run by Blair Harrison, who was our CTO at iFilm. You've got a company called Amagi. You've got a company called Oterra. So you've got these companies that are taking signals from channels, normalizing the data set, and then delivering it to the endpoint, which is a Samsung or a Vizio or an LG. And then there's other apps like that that are out there that they're delivering to as well. Got it. The Samsung Plus enabled televisions started at what date? Around 2016. And and um, I think people would be familiar with the notion of an operating system. Oh, for sure. So you've got iOS, you've got Android. Um, Samsung's built a proprietary operating system called the Tizen platform, T-I-Z-E-N. And the Tizen platform is what makes all of Samsung's functionality function. (laughs) So the TV Plus application and their content center and the way that they've gone to market, Tizen has become, it's actually, I was at Costco the other day and I was looking at a new uh, Samsung and they actually promote the Tizen operating system on the outside of the box. Interesting. Yeah, it is. It's really interesting. And then you've got other operating systems. So Right. So if I have a Samsung-enabled Samsung Plus unit uh, and I go to apps, the Fuel TV logo just sits there and I just click on it. Well, actually, it's the TV Plus app, which is essentially their electronic programming guide for all the free channels that they have as part of TV Plus. And then you have a lineup of channels just like you would in your cable box. And we're, ch- we're channel 1179 and... Bingo, there we are. There you go. That's awesome. Well, listen, we've got a few minutes left. We could go on and on with the intricacies because it's fascinating to me. And certainly those media folks that tune in are going to find it fascinating as well. We have four regular pieces that we do on every Best Boss Ever podcast episode. And so here you go. All right. The favorite mistake. That's the one that you made that you learned the most from, and it still sits in, you know, sort of front and center for you. You and I have run big events, and I remember we were getting down to crunch time, and things were not going the way that I wanted them to go, and I was pretty frustrated, and, and I'm, I'm walking along with a really good friend of mine who worked for me at the time, Chewy Madrigal, and I said in a very loud voice, God damn it, when do I get things the way I want them? And he took me aside, and he said, boss, First of all, you can't let people see you like this. It's not a good look. And he said, and let me tell you, you know, when you get things the way you want them, when you tell us what you want. And I thought, wow, I thought that if you guys really could just see what was in my own head, I would be, you know, everything would be good. And I realized that maybe to get what I wanted, I need to say what I wanted. That was a big learning. Well, that's one all of us can learn from and take to the bank. Uh, Your favorite female artist, singer, songwriter, band... Nina Simone. Oh, nice. Is there a favorite track of Nina's? Baltimore, I think. Well, that's those are great. So the next one here, the best humorous moment in your career. You know, the one where 
humor help diffuse tensions or avoid a problem before it became one? And then how important do you think humor is in the workplace? I think humor is incredibly important. And I, I'm not sure how funny, well, it was funny for a group of us at the time, but it's actually ended up being a lot more profound in my life. Um, it was when we got acquired by the, the Liberty Sports guys and all of us from Prime Ticket thought we were pretty hot stuff. And we get invited down to Dallas for the big executive meeting. And the guy that was the CEO at the time gets up in front of everybody and starts to mimic some kind of thing where he was drilling something into the ceiling and he's making this funny noise like he says y'all might be wondering what i'm doing up here he says i'm showing you illustrating to you that you could be standing in the pit in flint michigan bolting mufflers into the bottom of trucks you all have pretty good jobs he said i just want to share something with y'all he says you know my job is flying around the country and seeing all of you and you know for a long time i hated it and then I decided that hating it wasn't helping it. So I decided not to hate it anymore. And now it's not so bad. But we all kind of laughed at that hillbilly wisdom that we got. But I got to tell you, hating it, don't help it has been something that has become something to live by for me. So it was funny and also 30 years later, pretty profound. I hope you got a T-shirt that says that. Hating it, don't help it. <laughs> uh, all right. The last one and the pithy one. We agree words matter, what you say, what you don't say as a leader, what you do, what you don't do. So your favorite word and why? Well, you know the word schadenfreude. It's a German word that doesn't quite have a literal English translation. It's when you take pleasure in the misfortune of others. And it's a it's a really bad word. And, you know, I'm I'm sure that it's something that we've all felt from time to time. But in Sanskrit, there's a word that's opposite of that. It's called mudita, and it's when you take tremendous pleasure in the good fortune of others. And as I've gotten older in my career, seeing good things happen to people that I care about has become a great joy. And I talked to my best friend yesterday, and after 35 years running the company business, he's finally figured out a way to retire. And I took such pleasure in the fact that he's doing that. I will never retire, of course. I can't. I won't be able to. But it's. I think that, for me, has, is a word that really resonates. I, I think if we take more joy in the good fortune of our friends, that I think the world's a better place. Amen to that. Uh, that is really sage, and I appreciate that. Don, listen, you have been more than generous with your time. Thanks so much for being a part of that, and it's great to reconnect on this podcast. Thanks, Carl. Good to see you. Yep. You take care, bud. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Please visit our website at thebestbossever.com, where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Until next week, remember, words matter.